Section six of Mark the Matchboy or Richard Hunter's Ward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tori Falder. Mark the Matchboy or Richard Hunter's Ward by Horatio Alger Jr. Chapter eleven Mark's Victory. Meanwhile, Mark, rejoicing in his newfound freedom, had started on a business walk among the stores and offices at the lower part of Nassau Street, and among the law and banking offices of Wall Street. Fortunately for Mark, there had been a rise in stocks, and Wall Street was in a good humor. So a few of the crumbs from the tables of the prosperous bankers and brokers fell in his way. One man, who had just realized $10,000 on a rise in some railway securities, handed Mark 50 cents, but declined to take any of his wares. So this was all clear profit and quite a windfall for the little match boy. Again, in one or two cases, he received double price for some of his matches, and the result was that he found himself by 11 o'clock, the possessor of $2 and a quarter, with a few boxes of matches still left. Mark could hardly realize his own good fortune. Somehow it seemed a great deal more profitable, as well as more agreeable, to be in business for himself than to be acting as the agent of Mother Watson. Mark determined that he would never go back to her unless he was actually obliged to do so. He wanted somebody to sympathize with him in his good fortune, and, as he had nearly sold out, he determined to hunt up Ben Gibson and inform him of his run of luck. Ben, as he knew, was generally to be found on Nassau Street, somewhere near the corner of Spruce Street. He therefore turned up Nassau Street from Wall, and in five minutes he reached the business stand of his friend Ben. Ben had just finished up a job as Mark came up. His patron was a young man of verdant appearance, who, it was quite evident, hailed from the country. He wore a blue coat with brass buttons and a tall hat in the style of ten years before, with an immense top. He gazed with complacency at the fine polish which Ben had imparted to his boots, a pair of stout cowhides, and inquired with an assumption of indifference. "'Well, boy, what's the tax?' Twenty-five cents,' said Ben coolly. Twenty-five cents!' ejaculated the customer with a gasp of amazement. "'Come now, you're joking.' "'No, I ain't,' said Ben. "'You don't mean to say you charge twenty-five cents for five minutes' work.' "'Regular price,' said Ben. "'Why, I don't get but twelve and a half cents an hour when I work out haying,' said the young man in a tone expressive of his sense of the unfairness of the comparative compensation." "'Maybe you don't have to pay a big license,' said Ben. "'A license for black and boots?' ejaculated the countryman in surprise. "'In course, I have to deposit five hundred dollars more or less in the city treasury before I can black boots.' Five hundred dollars?' repeated the customer, opening his eyes wide at the information. "'In course,' said Ben. "'If I didn't, they'd put me in jail for a year.' "'And does he pay a license, too?' asked the countryman, pointing to Mark, who had just come up. He only has to pay two hundred and fifty dollars, said Ben. They ain't so hard on him as on us. The young man drew out his wallet reluctantly and managed to raise twenty-three cents, which he handed to Ben. I wouldn't have had my boots blacked if I'd had known the price, he said. I could have blacked them myself at home. They didn't cost but three dollars, and it don't pay to give twenty-five cents to have them blacked. It'll make them last twice as long, said Ben. My blacking is the superiorest kind and keeps boots from wearing out. I haven't got the other two cents, said the young man. Ain't that near enough? It'll do, said Ben, magnanimously, seeing you didn't know the price. The victimized customer walked away, gratified to have saved the two cents, but hardly reconciled to have expended almost quarter of a dollar on a piece of work which he might have done himself before leaving home. Well, what luck, Mark, said Ben. 
I took in that chap neat, didn't I? But you didn't tell the truth, said Mark. You don't have to buy a license. Oh, what's the odds, said Ben, whose ideas on the subject of truth were far from being strict. It's all fair in business. Didn't that chap open his eyes when I told him about paying five hundred dollars? I don't think it's right, Ben, said Mark seriously. Don't you go preaching, Mark, said Ben, not altogether pleased. You've been tied to an old woman's apron string too long. That's what's the matter with you. Mother Watson didn't teach me the truth, said Mark. She don't care whether I tell it or not except to her. It was my mother that told me I ought always to tell the truth. Women don't know anything about business, said Ben. Nobody in business speaks the truth. Do you see that sign? Mark looked across the street and saw a large placard setting forth that a stock of books and stationery was selling off at less than cost. Do you believe that? asked Ben. Perhaps it's true, said Mark. Then you're jolly green. That's all I've got to lay, said Ben. But you haven't told me how much you've made. See here, said Mark, and he drew out his stock of money. Whoo! whistled Ben in amazement. You're in luck. I guess you've been speculating on your license, too. No, said Mark. One gentleman gave me fifty cents, and two others paid me double price. Why, you're getting rich, said Ben. Ain't you glad you left the old woman? But just then Mark lifted up his eyes and saw a sight that blanched his cheek. There, bearing down upon him, and already but a few feet distant, was Mother Watson. She was getting over the ground as fast as her stoutness would allow. She had already caught sight of Mark, and her inflamed eyes were sparkling with triumphant joy. Mark saw with terror that her hand was already feeling in the pocket where she kept the leather strap. Much as he always feared the strap, the idea of having it applied to him in the public street made it even more distasteful. "'What shall I do, Ben?' he said, clutching the arm of his companion. "'What are you afraid of? Do you see a cop after you?' "'A cop is the street boy's name for a policeman.' "'No,' said Mark. "'There's Mother Watson coming after me. Don't you see her?' "'That's Mother Watson, is it?' asked Ben, surveying the old body with a critical eye. "'She's a beauty, she is.' "'What shall I do, Ben? She'll beat me.' "'No, she won't,' said Ben. "'You just keep quiet and leave her to me. "'Don't be afraid. She shan't touch you.' "'She might strike you,' said Mark apprehensively. "'She'd better not,' said Ben very decidedly. "'Not unless she wants to be landed in the middle of next week at very short notice.' By this time, Mother Watson came up, puffing and panting with the extraordinary efforts she had made. She could not speak at first, but stood and glared at the match-boy in a vindictive way. "'What's the matter with you, old lady?' asked Ben coolly. "'You ain't took sick, be you? I'd offer to support your delicate form, but I'm afraid you'd be too much for me.' "'What do you mean by running away from home, you little thief?' said the old woman at length, regaining her breath. Of course, her remark was addressed to Mark." "'You're very polite, old lady,' said Ben, "'but I've adopted that boy, and he's going to live with me now.' "'I ain't speaking to you, you vagabone,' said Mother Watson, "'so you needn't give me no more of your impertinence. "'I'm a-speaking to him.' "'I'm not going to live with you any more,' said Mark, "'gaining a little courage from the coolness of his friend, the boot-black. "'Ain't a-going to live with me,' gasped the old woman, "'who could hardly believe she'd heard aright. "'Come right away, sir, or I'll drag you home.' "'Don't you stir, Mark,' said Ben. Mother Watson drew out her strap and tried to get at the match-boy, but Ben put himself persistently in her way. "'Clear out, you vagabone,' said the old lady, "'or I'll give you something to make you quiet.' "'You'd better keep quiet yourself,' said Ben, not in the least frightened. 
Don't you be afraid, Mark. If she kicks up a rumpus, I'll give her over to a cop. He'll settle her. Mother Watson, by this time, was very much incensed. She pulled out her strap and tried to get at Mark, but the boot black foiled her efforts constantly. Carried away with anger, she struck Ben with the strap. Look here, old lady, said Ben. That's going a little too far. You won't use that strap again. And with a dexterous and vigorous grasp, he pulled it out of her hand. Give me that strap, you vagabone, screamed the old woman furiously. Look here, old lady, what are you up to? demanded the voice of one having authority. Mother Watson, turning around, saw an object for which she never had much partiality, a policeman. Oh, sir, she said, bursting into maudlin tears, it's my bad boy that I want to come home and he won't come. Which is your boy? That one? asked the policeman, pointing to Ben Gibson. No, not that vagabone, said the old woman spitefully. I wouldn't own him. It's that other boy. Do you belong to her? asked the officer, addressing Mark. No, sir, said the match boy. He does, vociferated the old woman. Is he your son? No, she said, after a moment's hesitation. Is he any relation of yours? Yes, he's my nephew, said Mother Watson, making up her mind to a falsehood as the only means of recovering Mark. Is this true? asked the officer. No, it isn't, said Mark. She's no relation to me, but when my mother died, she offered to take care of me. Instead of that, she's half-starved me and beaten me with a strap when I didn't bring home as much money as she wanted. Then you don't want to go back with her? No, I'm going to take care of myself. Is there anybody that will prove the truth of what you say? Yes, said Mark. I'll call Mrs. Flanagan. Who is she? She lives in the same house with us. Shall he call her, or will you give him up? asked the officer. By the way, I think you're the same woman I saw drunk in the street last week. Mother Watson took alarm at this remark, and muttering that it was hard upon a poor widow woman to take her only nephew from her, shuffled off, leaving Mark and Ben in full possession of the field, with the terrible strap thrown in as a trophy of the victory they had won. I know her of old, said the policeman. I guess you'll do as well without her as with her. Satisfied that there would be no more trouble, he resumed his walk and Mark felt that now in truth he was free and independent. As Mother Watson will not reappear in this story, it may be said that only a fortnight later she was arrested for an assault upon her sister, the proprietor of the apple stand, from whom she had endeavored in vain to extort a loan, and was sentenced to the island for a period of three months, during which she ceased to grace metropolitan society. Chapter 12. The Newsboy's Lodging House When Mother Watson had turned the corner, Mark breathed a sigh of relief. Don't you think she'll come back again? He asked anxiously of Ben Gibson. No, said Ben. She is scared of the cop. If she ever catches you alone and tries to come any of her games, just call a cop and she'll be in a hurry to leave. Well, said Mark, I guess I'll try to sell the rest of my matches. I haven't got but a few. All right, I'll try for another shine and then we'll go and have some dinner. I'd like to get hold of another greenie. Mark started with his few remaining matches. The feeling that he was his own master and had a little hoard of money for present expenses gave him courage, and he was no longer deterred by his usual timidity. In an hour he had succeeded in getting rid of all his matches, and he was now the possessor of $2.75, including the money Ben Gibson owed him. Ben also was lucky enough to get two ten-cent customers, which helped his receipts by 20 cents. Ben, it may be remarked, was not an advocate of the one-price system. He blacked boots for five cents when he could get no more. When he thought there was a reasonable prospect of getting ten cents, that was his price. 
Sometimes, as in the case of the young man from the rural districts, he advanced his fee to 25 cents. I don't approve of Ben's system for my part. I think it savors considerably of sharp practice and that fair prices in the long run are the best for all parties. The boys met again at one o'clock and adjourned to a cheap underground restaurant on Nassau Street, where they obtained what seemed to them a luxurious meal of beefsteak with a potato, a small plate of bread, and a cup of what went by the name of coffee. The steak was not quite up to the same article at Delmonico's, and there might be some reasonable doubts as to whether the coffee was a genuine article. But, as neither of the boys knew the difference, we may quote Ben's familiar phrase and say, What's the odds? Indeed, the free and easy manner in which Ben threw himself back in his chair, and the condescending manner in which he assured the waiter that the steak was a prime article, could hardly have been surpassed in the most aristocratic circles. "'Well, Mark, have you had enough?' asked Ben. "'Yes,' said Mark. "'Well, I haven't,' said Ben. "'I guess I'll have some puddin'. "'Look here, Johnny,' to the colored waiter. "'Just bring a feller a plate of apple dump with both kinds of sauce.' After giving this liberal order, Ben tilted his chair back and began to pick his teeth with his fork. He devoted himself with assiduity to the consumption of the pudding and concluded his expensive repast by the purchase of a two-cent cigar with which he ascended to the street. "'Better have a cigar, Mark,' he said. "'No, thank you,' said the match-boy. "'I think I'd rather not.' "'Oh, you're feared of being sick. You'll come to it in time. All businessmen smoke.' It is unnecessary to dwell upon the events of the afternoon. Mark was satisfied with the result of his morning's work and waited about with Ben till the close of the afternoon when the question came up as to where the night should be passed. I guess we'd better go to the lodge, said Ben. Were you ever there? No, said Mark. Well, come along. They'll give us a jolly bed, all for six cents, and there's a good warm room to stay in. Then we can get breakfast in the morning for six cents more. All right, said Mark. We'll go. The downtown newsboy's lodging house was at that time located at the corner of Fulton and Nassau Streets. It occupied the fifth and sixth stories of the building then known as the Sun Building, owned by Moses S. Beach, the publisher of that journal. In the year 1868, circumstances rendered it expedient to remove the lodge to a building in Park Place. It is to be hoped that at some day not far distant, the Children's Aid Society, who carry on this beneficent institution, will be able to erect a building of their own in some eligible locality, which can be permanently devoted to a purpose so praiseworthy. Ben and Mark soon reached the entrance to the lodge on Fulton Street. They ascended several flights of narrow stairs till they reached the top story. Then, opening a door at the left, they found themselves in the main room of the lodge. It was a low-studded room of considerable dimensions, amply supplied with windows, looking out on Fulton and Nassau Streets. At the side nearest the door was a low platform, separated from the rest of the room by a railing. On this platform were a table and two or three chairs. This was the place for the superintendent and for gentlemen who, from time to time, addressed the boys. The superintendent at that time was Mr. Charles O'Connor, who still retains the office. Probably no one could be found better adapted to the difficult task of managing the class of boys who avail themselves of the good offices of the newsboy's home. His mild yet firm manner, and more than all the conviction that he is their friend, and feels a hearty interest in their welfare, secure a degree of decorum and good behavior which could hardly be anticipated. Oaths and vulgar speech, however, common in the street, are rarely heard here, or, if heard, meet with instant rebuke. The superintendent was in the room when Ben and Mark entered. "'Well, Ben, what luck have you had today?' said Mr. O'Connor. "'Pretty good,' said Ben. "'And who is that with you?' "'Mother Watson's nephew,' said Ben, with a grimace. "'He's only joking, sir,' said Mark. "'My name is Mark Manton.' "'I am glad to see you, Mark,' said the superintendent. "'What is your business?' 
I sell matches, sir. Have you parents living? No, sir. They are both dead. Where have you been living? In Vandewater Street. With anyone? Yes, with a woman they call Mother Watson. Is she a relation of yours? No, sir, said Mark hastily. What sort of a woman is she? Bad enough, sir. She gets drunk about every day and used to beat me with the strap when I did not bring home as much money as she expected. So you have left her? Yes, sir. Have you ever been up here before? No, sir. I suppose you know the rules of the place. Yes, sir. Ben has told me. You had better go and wash. We shall have supper pretty quick. Have you any money? Yes, sir. Mark took out his hoard of money and showed it to the superintendent, who was surprised at the amount. How did you get so much? he asked. Part of it was given me, said Mark. What are you going to do with it? You don't need it all. Will you keep it for me, sir? I will put as much of it as you can spare into the bank for you. This is our bank. He pointed to a table beside the railing on the outside. The top of it was pierced with narrow slits, each having a number attached. Each compartment was assigned to any boy who desired it, and his daily earnings were dropped in at the end of the day. Once a month the bank was opened, and the depositor was at liberty to withdraw his savings if he desired it. This is an excellent arrangement, as it has tendency to teach frugal habits to the young patrons of the lodge. Extravagance is one of their besetting sins. Many average a dollar and over as daily earnings, yet are always ragged and out at elbows, and often are unsupplied with the small price of a night's lodging at the home. The money is squandered on gambling, cigars, and theater going, while the same sum would make them comfortable and independent of charity. The disposition to save is generally the first encouraging symptom in a street boy, and shows that he really has a desire to rise above the circumstances and gain a respectable position in the world. Ben, who had long frequented the lodging house off and on, led the way to the washing room, where Mark, to his satisfaction, was able to cleanse himself from the dust and impurity of the street. At Mother Watson's he had had no accommodations of the kind, as the old lady was not partial to water, either internally or externally. He was forced to snatch such opportunities as he could find. Now, said Ben, we'll go into the gymnasium. A room opposite the main room had been fitted up with a few of the principal appliances of a gymnasium, and these were already in use by quite a number of boys. Mark looked on but did not participate, partly from bashfulness and partly because he did not very well understand the use of the different appliances. How do you like it? asked Ben. Very much, said Mark with satisfaction. I'm glad you brought me here. I'll show you the beds by and by, said Ben. The rooms on the floor below were used for lodging. Tiers of neat beds, some like those in a steamboat or a hospital, filled a large room. They were very neat in appearance and looked comfortable. In order to ensure their continuing neat, the superintendent requires such as need it to wash their feet before retiring to bed. The supper was, of course, plain, but of good quality and sufficient quantity. About nine o'clock, Mark got into the neat bed which was assigned him, and felt that it was more satisfactory even than the cabin of a Brooklyn ferryboat. He slept peacefully except towards morning, when he dreamed that his old persecutor, Mother Watson, was about to apply the dreaded strap. He woke up terrified, but soon realized with deep satisfaction that he was no longer in her clutches. End of section six of Mark the Matchboy or Richard Hunter's Ward by Horatio Alger, Jr. Recording by Tori Falder.